HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Deputy Editor of a Far Magazine, Jen Murphy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's really hard to keep track of you. <laughs> you are constantly crisscrossing the world. But I just want to start this show with a motto of yours. We must be willing to get rid of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us by Joseph Campbell. And I've been reading that over and over, almost as a mantra to myself as well, because I'm hoping to do some travels later this year. But your get up and go is is kind of unparalleled in, you know, the the magazine world. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet you when you were at Food and Wine. Um, Now, you know, crisscrossing the coast, being bi-coastal. Where's home? Where, where do you feel, you know, uh, is your home base? That is such a good question. I feel like a nomad this year. Um, but, but kind of like that quote, you kind of, you have to just embrace it. So being bi-coastal, I still feel totally at home in New York, I have to admit. I think partly because my friend's here and I have some semblance of a routine. Um, but really the afar motto is you have to make everywhere home. So... Um, the best thing is after being away, I think I was just away 23 days and to walk into my, you know, tiny New York apartment and see my couch and just like my weird stuff. It was so comforting and to cook a meal. I hadn't had a home cooked meal in almost three weeks. Um, even though it was the most simple thing ever. Um, it just gives me a sense of normalcy, but yeah, this year I say there's no home right now. (laughs) Well, let's talk about your original home the Jersey Shore, but the nice part, you say, Point Pleasant. The the nice part of New Jersey. So tell me about that upbringing, those those food memories. Oh, God. 
Um, you know, when I, th- I feel like every child is like this, you're like, I can't wait to leave my home. And then you start traveling and I'm like, God, I grew up in like a really beautiful place, like really beautiful place. And it was funny. I was sitting on my friend's dock, um, in the town over last night and he was like, you know, do you think parts of the Jersey shore will ever get hip and cool? Like the Hamptons or turn into like Rockaway beach. And we were both like, no, <laughs> like it probably won't. But growing up, my dad was a fisherman. So you know, we grew up with a lot of fresh caught fish, lobster on the weekends in the summer, crabs, we'd go crabbing on the weekends. So it was funny for me um, when I started traveling to realize that's not, you know, that's not the norm in most places. I mean, have you found some common thread, some normalcy throughout every place that you visited? Um, That's a good question. You know, for me, I always say this, and a lot of times for work, you're traveling alone, and we, we joke at a far, like, what kind of traveler are you? Do you get in the taxi and get on your iPhone right away, or do you start a conversation with the cab driver? And I think it's easy if you're traveling alone to kind of keep to yourself, or I try to strike up a conversation, and I guess the people you meet, like, no matter where you are, there's usually, like, a general pride in place by the locals, and they want to share that. So I found that, I mean, I have I have these random friends from all over the world now who I keep in touch with, which I think is like the coolest thing. Yeah. I mean, I I was reading about how you interact when you travel, (laughs) you know, and you you say, ask a bartender where to eat. You know, who do you consider the local or do you yourself try to assimilate and be like a local when you travel? I try to assimilate. I mean, it depends. I'm a big runner. So when like this little blonde girl is running with her ponytail through India, like I definitely don't look like a local <laughs> or people usually don't go running. But um, I think also, again, like I eat at the bar by myself a lot. So I'll start talking to the, the bartenders on where to eat or once they know you're interested in food or drinks. Like we were just in Nashville for the first time. And once our waiter found out we were really into food and saw our kind of eating list, he was like, oh, my God, I'm calling my friend and you should go here. And then we're going to we had a random guy we met on the plane drive us to Loveless Cafe. Which I thought was the most amazing thing ever. He has a band that's really big in China. I was like, you're only here for this long. You know, have a car. He's like, I'm going to take you and your friends and we're going to go have breakfast. So, I mean, Afar, as well as your own life, is about like this <laughs> congenial nature, which, you know, you have to be adventurous. But at the same time, you just have to have like this kindness or this belief in, you know, kindness. Uh, in traveling, you know, what are instances where you were just in the middle of nowhere and, and huh. that, that kind of blissful moment happened? Oh, gosh. I feel like it weirdly happens to me a lot. Like, one of my favorite trips recently, I was in Portugal, and the first part of the trip I was by myself, and um, the, these two couples saw me eating dinner and came over and started asking questions. And I was in the Algarve and, you know, intended to take the train back to Lisbon the next day, and they're like, no, 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 we'll drive you. And of course, there's always that in the back of your head. My mom saying, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> um, but yet they, they drove me all the way to Lisbon. And then the wife took off the next day to take me on a shopping tour of the city. And then they brought friends out that night to dinner because they wanted me to meet and interact with their friends. And then we went out dancing until sunrise. And I was still not assimilated to the time. So I felt so bad. Like by 3 a.m. I was like, I have to go home. Like I'm so <laughs> tired. It's kind of an amazing thing that you you can kind of fit yourself into so many different places and societies. Um, you know, my, my fear sometimes being a slightly introverted person is is that. So, 
let's talk about the other side, researching yeah. the heck out of something before going to. Where do ah. you start? And let's, let's take a couple of your more recent Research. journeys. Yeah, I am a huge, I, I am a geeky, geeky travel researcher, like huge geeky travel researcher. So, and I'm kind of old school, so I'll tear pages out of the New York Times or out of magazines. And in my Outlook, you know, my inbox has folders for every trip I had planned, whether it's in a week or whether it's like next spring. So if I emailed you and I asked, can you send me this list? You have that oh, right totally. there. Yeah. It's, it's kind of sick. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we just went, my friends and I just went sailing in Croatia. One of my friends is Croatian. So we already had a local connection, some of his friends. And my, my only task was to make sure we ate well. Um, and then I also went to Slovenia afterwards. So, you know, I just started Googling articles that travel places did. I got in touch with a writer from the New York Times who is based in Croatia and asked him for some tips. I had remembered a friend of a friend had been in Slovenia, so I emailed her. And it, it is surprising, like going back to that pride, I I drove probably, I emailed for a restaurant reservation in Slovenia and the chef said they were closed for a wedding but they'd be open for lunch. And I assumed he meant he'd be open to the public for lunch. And here I am driving up in my little stick ship in the middle of this vineyard. And it's one table just for me under a tree. And it was him and his waiter. And I think I ate for four hours and it was just the kindest. He wouldn't let me pay. He had no idea. I worked for a magazine. It was one of the most memorable meals I've ever had. And he gave me a whole itinerary of other places to go after that. Well, I mean, you talk about tourism, obviously they want to bring people in, but mm -hmm. again, this, this unparalleled pride that yeah. happens. Um, so what are the prides of Slovenia? What kind of food did you eat there? It was, well, no, the interesting thing is, you, you know, people do have such um, polarizing feelings about America and Americans, but for the most part, when I travel, people are so excited to have people from the United States and their country. And that was his reaction. I was like, Oh my gosh, you opened just for me. He's like, you came all the way from America to eat at my restaurant. Like I'm your host, not just here, but in my country. Um, and and here I were like, goddamn tourists. I know, right? push them. And that's what I kept thinking. I'm like, God, like we wouldn't do that in New York. <laughs> maybe, maybe we would, but Slovenia was interesting. It was this kind of, um, it's kind of like a gardener's fairyland. Like every single person had this, picture perfect bountiful garden and people would seriously be walking down the street just like plucking tomatoes and eating them um the little place i stayed it was called the garden village bled was all of these tents and tree houses and they were like feel free to eat from the garden as long as the produce is ripe so it it was some of the best produce i've ever had and you know great meat i had which i i, I had to email him to make sure i didn't lose it in translation um but i ate it was bare cheeks sous vide for 13 hours. Bare cheeks. I, I was almost certain he, he meant boar, but then we emailed and I was like, no, he definitely said bear. And it was delicious. It was absolutely delicious, like covered with a little sliver of lardo. Um, but that was pretty wild. So, I mean, amongst all your journeys, there, there are trends that pop up throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm just going to read this list that you sent to me of oh. your, your recent destinations and We've mentioned Croatia and Slovenia, mm -hmm. and from there, London, Colorado, uh, Verbier. I didn't know where that was. Oh, Switzerland. Switzerland, Austin, Asheville, Charleston, mm -hmm. Maine, Marrakesh, Nambia, Mozambique, Cape Town. Do you see any culinary trends that are cohesively around the world? That is such a good question. 
You know, I think, I mean, definitely this trend has been around so long, but definitely people sourcing local, taking a real pride in who their purveyors are, promoting their purveyors on the menus, um, doing things in-house, whether that's pickling, curing. I mean, even in Cape Town, we ate at the Test Kitchen, which is on, you know, the world's 50 best list. And I mean, it was just as fetly. The plates were all thought out and handmade by a local artisan, like, you know, every little detail is thought of. And then again, like you have a fancy place like the Test Kitchen, but next door they'll have a more casual spot. So I think it's also a lot of chefs who are doing high end, but also opening second spaces to kind of have fun and do something that's a little more accessible for people. Yeah, I've sure been seeing it. And I know some of your favorite places in the country are like Meadowwood, yeah. Levin Madsen Park, and they, they've had their offshoots. Totally. But let's talk about other favorite places here in New York. <laughs> oh, you know, wow. what greasy spoons do you go to? Because oh. it's not always about traveling to a vineyard and eating there solo no. or, you know, being at the most posh and lush hotel. So where do you get your fix? I wouldn't, this is definitely not a greasy spoon, but when I'm having a bad day, like my favorite thing to do is to go down to um, Delanima in the village and sit at their bar and have a glass of wine believe me we love joe enough that we gave (laughs) him a show on the station (laughs) i love joey's place and it's just it's that neighborhood feel that i think i love and the food is consistently consistently good i live up on the upper west side which is a bit of a um still a food black hole but you can find great things and i i'm a sucker for the mermaid Inn. i'll go sit at the bar at the mermaid Inn there um where else do i love to go I st- resto, I still always go to get their burger and good Belgian beer. And I actually, I feel like since I've been traveling more this year, I end up, the Upper West Side has great food stores, like really good food stores. So I feel like I'm actually cooking more this year here than I ever have before. So we, we talked about those restaurants and, you know, there's Italian, there's Belgian, there's, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of seaboard with the oysters. Does that food transport you? Because you've been to all these places around the world. You know, you've been to the sources of many of these cuisines and foods. How do you compare being in a place and eating it or eating at a place that cooks of a style? That's such a good question. I remember at Food and Wine, even at a bar, we talk about this. You know, if you have a city and you can only recommend five restaurants or ten restaurants, it's kind of like, who's going to go to... Italy and want Vietnamese food or who's going to go to Germany and want pizza but you do like there gets to a point where I'm like I don't want more schnitzel like I want like some pasta or I want sushi um I think so much depends on the ambiance and service and just the quality of the food um but I I don't think it can compare to being there like if you're on the coast of Cambodia having like crabs just caught out of the water like you no matter how good the chef is in new york you can't recreate that well then let's talk about a very interesting person and i'm sure a restaurant i've not i've not been yet but um andre oh i love andre, andre chiang in singapore uh he's a fascinating person i did an interview with him which i think is somewhere on heritage radio network.org but what's what's really interesting about him is how much everything comes from him and most of you know He's almost in third person when he's talking about his cuisine. It's mm-hmm. Andre's food, you know, and it's of these elements that Andre considers very special to him. How how was that experience different than, you know, going to a place to have their local 
you know, cuisine. Yeah. I am funny. I, Dana Cowan, the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine, used to say this about me, that I always like the fancy restaurants. <laughs> and it, it's not, yes, there's something nice about getting dressed up and, and having the service and the beautiful, you know, table setting. But for chefs like Chris Costo at Meadowood and Daniel at 11 Madison Park and Andre in Singapore, they're... I'm totally geeked out by the intellectual side of the food because it is it it's so much of the person and the place and it's so thoughtful. Um, so that's that's why with Andre for me it was such a you know it was unexpected in Singapore and he did this deconstructed Snickers bar. I'm a total I was such <laughs> a sweet tooth, but this gorgeous deconstructed Snickers bar and that's something that's so American. And he had this whole story about how he found, he searched for the perfect American candy bar that had the perfect textures and flavors and how he tried to do it like, I think like dozens and dozens of ways to get the perfect, you know, final dessert. I want a Snickers bar right now. I know. I want, I want to, what is that? Satisfy that hunger. They're, they're a wonderful tagline. But we're going to take a quick break and talk about, you know, how to travel and okay. what to do once you get there, the etiquettes thereof. <laughs> We've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jen Murphy, deputy editor of AFAR. How do you get ready to travel? And let's start, because most people think of travel as plane, so let's start there. Okay. What are the things that you take on a plane? How do you prepare yourself? Do you you not eat leading up? Do you sleep the whole time on there? Do you pick a window seat versus an aisle? I'm I'm such a laid-back traveler. I I do it so much, I should probably have more routine. I usually pack the morning of, which is not, you know, it just works. I do it so often now. Um, I figure whatever I don't have with me, I can get there, hopefully. Um, on the plane, people think I must take, like, the strongest drugs ever, but I just have the... <laughs> I actually physically cannot stay awake during takeoff. It is some weird chemical imbalance. Modes of transportation, I just shut down. The ma- I, people next to me are always like, oh, my God, you were out cold. Like, we were nervous. But, yeah, I will... I usually can sleep pretty well on flights, which is great. Knock on wood. Um what else do I take? I, I'm old school. I should probably get an iPad by now, but I always have a good book with me. I get all my magazine reading done. You know, now with flying, if there's Wi-Fi, I always joke you can tell I've been on a plane because my poor, like, our poor coworkers just get inundated with emails. <laughs> I get so much work done. Um, and because I'm never really home, like for me to watch a movie on the plane is like the biggest indulgence ever. Oh, I, I mean, I, di- I have an iPad now and... I should be using it for the greater good, but I'm using it to download movies right. and watch what I want to watch and catch up on TV and all that. Yeah. But you're flying about two to three times a month. Yeah. Uh, 
do you consider, you know, there was that weird Tom Hanks movie where he lived in the airport. Do you consider those kind of hubs your home sometimes? Sometimes. And I have my staples. Like, I know where I'll go get my coffee or I know which airports I need to bring food before I go to the airport. Which ones are those? um, LaGuardia. Sorry, New York. (laughs) LaGuardia and Newark are just so sad. So sad. JFK, I'm thrilled when I fly out of Heathrow. The new Heathrow is great. Like, I actually will go to Heathrow early to have a meal. Um nowadays no i sneak in the uh, shake shack at JFK. Oh, yeah so good and because what they don't have at other shake shacks which they certainly should is breakfast yeah because their bacon oh. egg and cheese and sausage and cheese is i just... get that with a coffee milkshake for breakfast or coffee concrete yeah. yeah i mean i literally go early like you said to the airport just to kind of like make it a good flight yeah and that also knocks me out on the plane too i'm done even the coffee milkshake I'm sure I can sleep straight through it. Yeah. So let's talk about other kinds of travel etiquette, because there must be ways, even in the city that you've been to a whole bunch of times or a place you've never been, mm-hmm. how do you carry yourself? How do you act? Do you, you know, you know, ask questions? Do you watch other people and kind of, you know, ape what they're doing? I usually ask questions. So, you know, the hotel, the hotel is always a great resource. The concierge, I think sometimes they look at me with these baffled looks um, in South America last year, I was training for the New York Marathon, so we'd be in like Ecuador or Bogota, and I'm like, I need to wake up, and can you map me out a 17 mile run? And <laughs> they would be like, Ex- Excuse me, what? Um, because that was not necessarily normal. But the, I, I usually go to the concierge for as many things as possible. Um, as a woman traveling alone, a lot of times, like last year, we were in Marrakesh for a conference, and I quickly realized like I should not be walking on the streets by myself alone whether it was night or day it was just not a smart thing to do which for me I'm super independent but sometimes you just need to be smart about things um and just you know locals sometimes find it amusing luckily not offensive but you know just trying to use people nothing drives me more crazy than when people apologize for their poor English when you're in their country and I'm like oh my god I apologize that I can't speak your language like I'm in your country um, but I think it always helps to try to speak the language. People appreciate that so much. Even the smallest bit of Smallest bit. Even if it's a thank you or I made a mistake in Croatia because instead of cheers, I was saying, I, they might have been teasing. They said I was saying, fuck your mother. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, there's all those things that are, I guess, similar hand signals that mean yes. one thing in another country. But uh, I'm sure I think they were fucking with you I a little bit. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> But even the dress, like the dress, you know, make sure if you're, you know, if you're in Florence and going into a church, your shoulders are covered as a woman. Or if you're in the Middle East, you want to be really cautious of like the drinking rules. So just doing a little research in advance to make sure you're aware of some of the cultural boundaries. So, I mean, in in this time of literally gastrotourism, yeah. I don't mean like looking up someone's GI tract and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, people really do travel just eat yeah el Bulli, noma i mean just to name a few it used to be cities it used to be like paris it used to be countries japan where in the world do you want to go and eat and have an oh adventure gosh. around that that's such a good question you know i will say let me say this quickly about the restaurant thing i think sometimes people become so obsessed at eating one restaurant and it becomes their mission on a trip and they lose sight of how much other how many other great experiences there were so a few years ago, I was in Copenhagen, and I had a restaurant reservation for Noma, and the founder of Afar was like, you know, you have to come back for the company retreat. And I was trying to explain to him, like, I couldn't just change my reservation. 
And rather than become obsessed with trying to change it the whole trip, I ate at Relay, I ate at Manfred's, I ate at so many other great restaurants. Um, and in the end, serendipitously, a waiter at Manfred's had been friends with a waiter at Noma who invited me to this party that ended up being the party on the Noma houseboat. So I think so much of what makes travel great is the serendipity. So I didn't get to eat at Noma, but I got to eat at the Noma test kitchen with the staff and then go sing karaoke till the sun came up. So, you know, if you can't always get into that one cult restaurant, um, don't let it ruin a trip. I always tell people or don't be afraid. You know, my friend Matt Bean and I just did this charity ride with Michael Chiarello in Napa and He's like, do you think we can walk over to the French Laundry and see if they could just take us for a lunch? And of course, like, of course, that didn't work. But <laughs> you never, like, you never know. Um, but where am I dying to travel and eat? That is such a good it's question. A good, well, I mean, it's also a big question because yeah. you've been to what, like, forty countries, five continents. Yeah. Well, you know, we've never. We were just talking about Japan, and that is the only country that totally intimidates me. Um, but I would absolutely love to go eat, not just Tokyo, but like Kyoto and just some kind of, you know, everyone goes to the major cities. I'd love to go to some like little random places that only locals know about because I'm sure the home cooking is just extraordinary. So when, when you get ready for a trip like that, because I actually am trying to go to Japan this mm-hmm. year, do you go out to eat for Japanese food? Do you get Japanese cookbooks? Do you try to, you know, cook Japanese food in preparation? No. That would be a failure. It would make everything seem so much better, I'm sure. No, know what I do? I actually, I tend to buy a lot of fiction books about the place I'm going and read those before a trip just to kind of paint some picture or, or kind of historical fiction. Um, so Cambodia is one of my favorite places I've ever been. And I, I hadn't known that much about the history. And I think I read like four historical fiction books. And it just, I was so blown away by how recent so many horrible things had gone on there and to see how the countries rebounded and how happy these people are. I think that's the other thing, like travel makes you just so much more appreciative of everything you have, like especially visiting Africa. We went last year in Namibia to um, one of the shanty towns and there was a man trying to figure out how to grow crops, but their sand, I mean, the soil is so sandy and like they don't get greens. Like they don't have 5,000 different types of lettuces and arugula and we're just so lucky for what we have here. So, I mean, not, not to go from, you know, being very lucky to the copious expenditures. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, when you travel, too, you see these food objects that you want to bring back with you. Yeah. Or you want to bring back and share with other people. What are those things? And how do you, you know, stuff them in your duffel bag? I look pretty innocent. In so, usually usually I can smuggle a lot. Um my running shoes, I usually put a lot of things in my running shoes, well saran wrapped. Um, I love, like, wine. I always bring wine back from my mom from whenever, wherever we are. So in Croatia, we went to this winery restaurant called um, Boskanov on Pog. And for the most part, we were drinking some pretty bad wine most of the trip, mixed with, like, orange soda or Coca-Cola. <laughs> and then we got here, and I was like, I will buy as much wine as you will sell me. Like, it was this amazing cab blend. Um, I love trying to smuggle cheeses back. Of course we did, we found these great peppercorns in Cambodia and kept that I smuggled back for our, our editor, Dirk Richardson as a huge foodie, um, at a far. So I smuggled those back for him. My whole suitcase smelled like peppercorn for weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I do pretty well with 
being able to smuggle things in, luckily. The one thing I did get caught for, which I had no idea, my colleague John and I had honey in our um, carry-ons going through the airport in Chile, in Santiago, and we were questioned for about two hours and almost fined like $5,000, and they take their honey seriously. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you're trying to bring it back for fun and maybe a little better research. Exactly. Um, This kind of leads me into the Wandering Chef series Uh that you've done, just because... A recent one, which I thought was awesome, was Jose Garces, mm-hmm. you know, who went down to Buenos Aires because he's opening, what, a steakhouse in D.C. D.C., yep. And sometimes you have to go to the place to research that rather than bring it back. Yeah. Uh, in talking to him, you know, how, how important was him, was it for him to be in, you know, B.A. and experience it there to be able to kind of recreate or, you know, visualize what he was going to do in D.C.? I think it just makes it more authentic. So, I mean... Uh, Jose's assistant is, I mean, she documented everything on Flickr. It was amazing. And their eating schedule, like he was saying, he had meat sweats when he went back. (laughs) It was like they must have had almost 10 meals a day. I can't travel like that anymore. I try to stick to like, okay, maybe six meals a day. But they, they did some serious eating. But you just, I think you can find these ingredients or products that you didn't know existed. And then, you know, he was able to get some of those to use back in dc and import them so one it helps you get something that no one else has Two, just seeing the techniques in person for whether it's cooking or making a cocktail um he found these incredible huge skewers at like a random flea market that they use for grilling and he was able to buy a bunch of those to take back so i think being able to be in a place and do the research you just learn so much more like we had just talked to stephanie Izzard, she was in belize and she was saying You know, the hotel she stayed at had a Guatemalan restaurant and a restaurant serving local food from Belize. So just to see the differences in culture, how one did their beans different, how one uses flour versus corn tortillas was really eye opening to her. So, I mean, this is back to those trends because you obviously talk to a lot of people who travel and kind of import ideas. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in the States? I mean, what are you seeing nationally happen that is on a global scale? Such a good question. I think like... You know, spirits, spirits that say a lot about place are huge right now. I was just reading this weekend in the Wall Street Journal. I'd just been in London. I thought it was so funny. Like, every bar is promoting American small batch spirits. And I was like, oh, my God, I get these at home. Like, what? So that's that's a big trend is just, you know, I think every state, just like craft beer took off, every state is going to have these, you know, small batch spirits that you can get kind of globally, whereas before it was just kind of more local or domestic. Um I think people are really starting to do a lot more with savory and dessert. I'm seeing that a lot. I'm seeing a lot of people who, God, I thank God, late night, uh, not everywhere in the country, but at least in San Francisco, because I go there once a month, late night dining has finally been embraced and is taking off. I think people are just really, because the consumer has a more sophisticated palate, even the bar food, like it's very thoughtful and serious. And even if it's simple, um, it's the best ingredients you can get, which is really nice to see. So being a novice traveler, and <laughs> if I wanted to be as wanderlust as you, what, what are those intro cities? Because uh, I'm, I'm assuming some are harder than not to, you know, get into or, you know, be acclimated towards. That's true. I always joke if I had, I spent three weeks in India and if Mumbai was the first city I had been dropped off in, I would have got right back on the plane because it's a one, one of the few places I felt totally shell shocked. Um, 
you know, it helps. The, the language always helps if you can speak the language. Um, but even if you don't, like, I still think Barcelona, whether or not you speak the language, is an easy city to break into. London is fantastic. And I always tell people whenever I go to London, I tack on a day to take the train somewhere outside of the city because there's amazing food in some of those little villages or little towns outside what of the city. What little towns? Oh, my gosh. There is a place called, there's a whole series of hotels called the Pig Hotels. So the newest is Pig on the Beach. And again, like they do all their own butchery. They do all of their own um, curing. They do cooking classes. So, you know, if you're going to go, whether you're there for pleasure or work, to get out of the city for a day and experience something like that is really great. And where are you going next? That is such a good question. I'm going to Boston for a wedding, and I love (laughs) Boston. I'm trying to figure out where to eat. And then I go Colorado, San San Francisco, Riviera del Maya, Ireland, Cannes. Dominica and St. Bart's. And what are you craving? What what foods or restaurants do you already have your on your itinerary? Oh gosh, that's you know I haven't thought that far. Boston, I always go to Island Creek Oyster. I, I can't not go to Boston and eat there. In let's see where else. San Francisco, I always go to SBQR when I go back. And I don't think it'll be open yet, but I'm dying to go check out the new restaurant that State Bird Provisions is opening. Ireland, we're doing this for an adventure travel summit. So I'm just, I haven't been there in so long. Um, we won't really be in Dublin. We'll be on the coast. Um, but I kind of just want to go to some of like the old school pubs and get like fish and chips and Guinness. Like sometimes that's also the best experience. You don't necessarily need the fanciest restaurant or the trendiest new restaurant. You just want something where like all the old locals are hanging out having beers. And we can follow you at. Jen goes afar on Twitter. Yes, and Instagram. And it's and it just, I mean, a lot of people covet your life, but I also know yeah. that it's exhausting at some points too. But thank you for at least showing us the world in that way. And I'm going to end with another quote. And I'm not calling you a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> it is from the Jay, you know, Jay Z song. It ain't where I've been, but where I'm about to go. Jen Murphy, thank, thank you so much for being thank on you so the much. food scene. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.